0: Hello and welcome to the Data IQ podcast. I'm David Reed, bringing you 30 minutes of interviews and insights from the data and analytics industry. In a moment, I talk to David Serverland, author of Office of Cards, a book about how to thrive in the politics of large organizations and life, and why bearing grudges is not a good idea.
1: Because large organizations are closed environments. People stick around, especially the bad ones.
0: Then we hear from a panel at this year's Data IQ Summit, which considered how to prepare your business to benefit from automation. We'll hear from Aviva's Orlando Machado. You don't get a free pass from saying AI. And Christine Foster from the Alan Turing Institute.
2: The, the danger with sort of the buzzword is that it sort of seems like magic. And the sort of, you know, the other side of magic is in witchcraft.
0: So first, I recently travelled to Amsterdam to meet David Servelan, Head of Analytics, Insight and Data for Global Experiences at Bookings.com. He recently published a book, Office of Cards, a practical guide to success and happiness in large organisations and life. I started by asking him where the idea came from. So David, um, you've written a book called Office of Cards, which is aimed at people who want to develop their careers in large organisations. Can you tell our listeners about the background to how the book came about?
1: Sure, sure, David, I can. So. I think there are two main things that came together uh, that made me think about writing this book. One is uh, when, you, when you see someone unhappy in a large organization, 99% of the content that they find is uh, you should leave the job in a large organization, you should be your own boss, you should go work for a startup and all that. And what people often don't tell you is that a lot of startups fail If you go and you are your own boss, then you are essentially everyone else's employee because uh, your success relies on clients, investors, uh, and and I mean, you name it, providers. So it's not as easy as they paint it. And that was one factor. I thought, okay, so is happiness only achievable in that context? How is that possible, considering that there are so many people working for large organizations and they don't all look unhappy? So there must be a key. And then the other element was the feeling of reward that I felt when I first became a people manager and then I had people that I was coaching in my managerial capacity and then i started also coaching people outside of my uh, you know employment environment and the level the 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 feeling of happiness that i had when these people were fulfilling themselves and through the work that we did together through also the tips that i shared with them it felt uh, it felt so good to see them uh, fulfill themselves uh, to see them grow and have fantastic careers and all that And then there was this tipping point, which was a dinner, I remember it fondly, uh, with a friend of mine, and and we were talking about large organizations. He's an advocate of, uh, oh, you should do a startup. I said, no, you know, there's a way to make it work in large organizations. Uh, Yeah, they don't make always a lot of sense, but there there are rules. And if you follow them, um, you actually can win. And then we started talking about this and we laughed. And then he said, like almost laughing after some wine, I have to say, he said, you should write a book about this stuff. And I said, well, write a book. That's not my thing. But somehow that thought, probably thanks to the wine, sunk in my brain. And after a few weeks, I started thinking, well, maybe I'm not going to write a book, but I'm going to write down some notes, right? And that that is how Office of Cards uh, came to be. The main point that I make about the book is, and this is especially true for, um, I believe, millennials. So what I talk about is probably becoming even more relevant for every new graduate that exists in the world. Because school teaches us, and now the world teaches us about instant gratification. You do something, you get something. That's it, like now, right? When you think about, uh, grading your paper, taking an exam—it's a—it's in the longest streak. It's a three-month stint, right? You do something, you learn something. Three months later, you have the exam, you pass the exam, forget about it, move on, right? That's—that's that's what they teach you, and now. Uh, with, with the world, with internet being everywhere and so on, you're used to, oh, I have a question, I Google the answer, and I have the answer, and I move on, right? So everything is at your fingertip. You want something, you click on Amazon, you have Prime next day, it's in your house. It's so timely, we are recording this today. Yesterday, Amazon announced their quarterly earnings call that um, essentially they are now pushing for one-day delivery instead of two-day delivery, and they have overspent a little bit, like 800 million overspent. Uh, but this is the future. Like they want people to have stuff one day after they click on buy. In this world, you might be led to think that it's like this everywhere. I want it now, so I do my thing, and then I get what I want. Problem is, large organizations don't work like that. For, for several reasons, the two main reasons are, first of all, large organizations' decision-making is decentralized. In many cases, you have a lot of people to convince, and that takes time. And also, uh, sometimes, uh, the organizational hierarchy is not that clear either. So you also need to figure that out. You need to figure out who the people that you need to take on your side are, and then you need to take them on your side, and then a decision is made. And for the decision to trickle down and trigger all the actions that we are talking about, it takes time, which means you need to be patient. And this is something nobody teaches you until you first start working. You need to learn how to work with people because large organizations are made with people and that is what makes the whole thing frustrating. The fact that you don't always understand them and the fact that your success depends on your capacity to work with other people. This is the context that really made me see the corporate world in a different way rather than a problem It's just a game to play. One of the rules that you need to accept in order to really make it work in a large organisation, it's called play the long game. Because it is a game, but it's not short, right? It's not, oh, roll the dice, move on. No. Sometimes you need to think, you need to consider, you need to be careful, you need to plan. um, And you always need to think one or two steps ahead.
0: How should people best absorb and apply the lessons that you've got? Um, Is it something they, they can work on? day by day, um, or is it only when it comes to those big moments where maybe they're looking for a promotion or they're about to go into a job interview?
1: The answer to the question, how can they draw from it, is through practice, I think. Uh, It's it's about, so the book is about how to change your behaviors, so focus on what you can control, uh, and then try to change your behavior to make sure that whatever you do has a purpose, and that that purpose is aligned to your long-term objectives right uh, So the book is actually in the first part of the book I talk about how to make sure that first of all figure out who you are and figure out what you want right And also figure out who you want to be to get what you want. And from there we design a path where the second part of the book talks about the skills that you need to make it work through other people and which which is also why the subtitle of the book is, uh, practical guide, guide for Success and Happiness in Large Organizations, and Life. Because guess what? If you learn how to work with people in a large organizations, uh, you also learn how to work with people when you go to the butcher, when you go to the grocery store, when you go to the post office, when you call upon some doctor for a need that you have. These skills are good for life. It's also I found people making comments about oh this thing has had me with my girlfriend, right? Because guess what, that's negotiation every day. The second part of the book is really about how to do it. Uh, we talk about how to influence people. We talk about uh, getting to a yes in a negotiation. I also answered the the question that is in the in the movie and the book, the Wolf of Wall Street, which is send me this pen. I give my own answer to that question, which is. Uh, I believe quite quite interesting. And then there are also at the end a section called office extras in which I give practical tips uh, how to optimize your CD, how to manage, how to prepare for an interview, how to um, run a successful and effective meeting, how to send an email properly. I mean, these things, nobody teaches them to you unless unless you are fortunate enough that you find, like I have been, uh, find someone that kind of does good and then you say "Well, oh, this is actually good. So then you learn from from that other person So you're
0: obviously drawing on a lot of experience um, and experience of large organizations What's your view of their psychological health if I can use that term um, for how Well or badly they're managed and how well or badly they they deal with their employees?
1: Well, at some point in the book, I think I call large organizations insane. <laughs> so think about psychological health, not that much. Um, like I said before, the problem of large organizations is only one. It's that there's a, there's a lot of people, right? In a small organization, there's 10 people. And so identifying if one of them is a bad person, it doesn't take a long time right? You you figure it out immediately. That person is rude. That person behaves badly. He speaks uh, poorly, uh, you know, whatever. He treats me bad. But in a large organization, you are exposed to hundreds of people, each of which have their own traits, their own feelings, their own agendas. And they're also skilled to some extent, probably more than the average person, to, you know, leverage all these things to their own advantage. So when your agenda is not aligned to their agenda, then you feel frustrated, right? And so I think that it's so important to really um, absorb the necessary skills that allow you to play with these emotions. First of all, control your own. Second of all, understand others. Learn how to read them. Learn how to um, dissect what they're doing and why they're doing because not always the two things are aligned or necessarily uh, connected with a causal relationship and so i, I think that it's not about uh, large organizations being particularly you know more complex inherently because of uh, some reason connected to the fact that they are a large organizations besides the sheer number of people that you have to work with everyone is different and and one of the things i was reflecting on uh, really recently was I took some uh, personality tests you know like MBTI and, uh, and the 16 personalities and, and what have you and I found a very interesting reading the section of how that personality which was my own interacts with A, B, C and D and clearly that thing says um, if you interact with this personality you have the following problems and, and I do So the thing is, in a small organization, probably I will find more people like me and I will not find someone that is the polar opposite. Therefore, I feel like it's easier. But guess what? It makes me grow less because if I put myself in a position of discomfort so that I have to figure out how to work with my polar opposite, I'm a better person at the end. If you really develop uh, the skills that make it work in a large organization, you are good to go. Whether you decide to stay in a large organization or even if at the end you want to be on your own, the skills that you have developed will serve you perfectly, even as a as a freelancer, as a solopreneur, as an entrepreneur, as a founder, whatever. So that, that's why I believe it's, it's really important. And large organizations are the best gym. If you want to learn that, they are the best gym because you have so many different cases uh, and you are forced to make it work with them.
0: And you're a manager yourself. Uh, So do you see this as something like a a cat and mouse game between managers and individuals?
1: I don't think it's as simple as cat and mouse, uh, but it's a game. Yes, I like to compare, uh, and I actually make a reference about this in the book, to, to the risk game, right? Because it's about plots, it's about deception sometimes, it's about decoy, it's about uh, I'm putting my tanks in here so that they think that that's what I want, but in reality I'm planning a move over there because, again, I like the risk metaphor because there is stuff that is on the board. So how many tanks I have is on the board. Where they are is on the board, but what they don't know is my cards, right? So... Maybe I'm making a move now, and in my hand I have the cards to get ten more tanks, which I will deploy all there, and then I will conquer the continent. Right? So it's it's more than cat and mouse, like chasing stuff, uh, which which is more um, primal, I would say, more um, amygdala kind of thing. This is prefrontal neocortex 100%. It's about planning. It's about thinking. It's about what do I really want and how can I achieve that? Think about plus one, plus two. Think about, don't think about your next move, which is what the world taught you to do, because then you might figure out that you end up on a dead end. You don't want that. So think about three moves ahead and think about scenarios, right? Of course, The mistake you could make if you do that too much is you fall in love with your three-step path and then you you don't question it again, which is a mistake. So draw a plan, but make it also flexible and be open to new inputs because as soon as you take the first of three steps, your perspective is completely different. You may be gaining different points of view and at that point you may have to change your plan, which is absolutely fine. Is
0: there anything in the book that people who work in data analytics particularly
1: should pay attention to? This is something I I, I realized after publishing the book because, uh, again, I thought about it purely from a managerial standpoint, um, but the reality is that in data, the problem is we data people sit on the truth more than anybody else in the organization. We have the data. Like, we can come up with insights that the company values and makes decisions on. Problem is that the decision doesn't sit with us. And so one of the things that I was very frustrated with at the beginning of my career was the fact that I was sitting on some truths and I wasn't able to convince people to follow my advice. Well, it wasn't my advice, it was the data, right? But yet, if I'm not capable of telling a good story, if I'm not capable of influencing the guy that controls the budget, the guy that has the decision-making power, the guy who, by organizational design, is the person that I need to convince if I want this to actually happen, I failed. And so one of the things that I keep telling my, my, the people in my team is, your job is done when I see it on the site. Not when you have delivered your insight, because maybe the person says thank you very much for the job, I'm not going to do it. And in that case, you failed. So, If you learn how to influence people, if you learn the skills that I talk about in Office of Cards, as an analyst, as a data scientist, you will learn a little bit of what it takes to make your work make an impact to your employer, right? And through that, you will feel more uh, satisfied professionally because I think there's nothing more rewarding than seeing a feature on the website that is the direct result of work you did. So I think it's very specific for data analytics, data science, and so on. But for every role, it's effectively, where you are in a position in which uh, you can have a good idea, you can substantiate it with data, but the decision-making is not with you.
0: So is there a particular lesson from the book that, that you wish someone could have given you earlier in your career?
1: Uh, yes, absolutely. I would say patience. Is, is the one um, it's and connected to patients that is seeing this as a really, as a game sometimes. And, and so you can be more detached. You don't take things personally. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a quote from uh, the, the, that is not emphasized enough in my opinion from uh, Mr. Robot, the show on, on Amazon uh, prime video and there's one person, very senior, uh, senior in that organization, and he says about uh, a young person who wants revenge for something that, that was done to her, she wants revenge. And then this guy says ever so lightly, you know, grudges in large organizations are not a thing. And that to me was, wow. Well, first of all, because I'm Italian, so I keep score, <laughs> right? I do. Um, but, and then... I felt like, yes, but what do I get if I get my revenge? Maybe five minutes of joy and then a lifetime of problems. So I really learned, and then I wrote about how to do it in the book, to detach from all that. And so to me, if you do something wrong to me, it's okay. I'll move on because it's a lot better. And so the one rule that I really, that I uh, that I identify with one of the hashtags that I think is, at least for me personally, maybe something else for somebody else, is the one that I call make no enemies. Because large organizations are closed environments. People stick around, especially the bad ones. Because the good ones are good. So if they're not happy, they just live. They've, they've got plenty of opportunities. And so if they're restless... One of the ways in which they can express it is just go somewhere else. But the bad ones, they know that that's the best they can get. Therefore, they stick around. They have patience. They have the one thing that you as an ambitious person don't have, which is the patience. And so I wish that I could have learned that earlier in my career because... After I started uh, uh, implementing these techniques, detaching from the situation, played the long game, mapping out things and so on, my career has accelerated so much, um, which you can tell if you look at my LinkedIn profile, but uh, I think it's... Um, and, and I feel so good. It's not just the results, but it's an overall feeling of balance and being in control. It's like nobody can ruin my day because I planned most of the things that, are, that may happen, and so I'm prepared.
0: Now, at the DataIQ Summit in June, my colleague, Tony Sakina, was the moderator for a panel session looking at how to tame technology for automatic returns. She asked Simon Kaffle, head of data transformation at HSBC, and Christine Foster, managing director for innovation at the Alan Turing Institute, for their suggestions. But she started by asking Orlando Machado, chief data scientist at Aviva, if automation is the preserve of large organizations.
3: Do you think that automation is the preserve of large companies that have a lot of resources at their fingertips, such as large tech stacks, a lot of money behind them? Uh,
4: I think it's probably the opposite. I think it's much easier for a small company to, to automate things. I think the challenge that any large company will have is technical legacy. So we have databases, literally, that are 50 years old. And these things are not built for automation. They're not built for connectivity. Startups will have a much easier job of taking advantage of all the technology that's out there and the move towards open source technology, which has been enormous. I think that the challenge is that it's bigger companies that have all the customers. So I think if we're going to try to to, um, deliver value for real people, we need to get the best of both worlds somehow.
5: Yeah, I'd agree with that, in that when you look at the... The scale of a lot of these large companies and the fact that uh, certainly with an organization like HSBC where you've got hundreds of people who have been in the organization for hundreds of years and are doing the same thing over and over again because it's worked and often they are so ingrained in those manual processes that their ability to, to stick their head up from above the parapet and think, how do I make this more efficient? How do I improve and innovate? is a really difficult thing to do. And I think having that agility, working in a smaller organisation, to be able to make those changes, to innovate. And you know, often when you think of big companies, you're thinking big budgets, small companies, small budgets. And I think that that barrier has come down significantly as well when you look at how much open source capability there is out in the market now,
3: so then, how challenging is it to develop a compelling business case to, for the adoption of automation?
2: I guess one of the things I've seen when people have talked about automation is, is you know, there are a bunch of tasks at the um, sort of a one end of the distribution where you know it's done millions and millions of times, and those RIs look really good right off the top. You know, a few minutes here, a few minutes there, but done over a kind of broad scale. What I think is trickier, and I've seen a couple of startups trying to go after this, is the automation of, of tasks that are really sort of distributed around all the organization. They're not all sitting in the call center. They're not all sitting in the sort of data cleansing spot. They're not all sitting in the, um, and that's a little bit harder to get at. Um, and some of the newer RPA players, the sort of small, nimble players I've seen, seem to be going after that long tail of automation tasks. Again, trying to give that boost to players who don't necessarily have the sort of scale. Um yeah, so the business cases are starting to change, I think. I think they were originally only good at the at one end of the distribution and then poor at the others, but I, I, I think we're starting to see some shifts.
5: I think also when you think about uh, some of the content that Orlando has just presented as well, that when you look at the artificial intelligence landscape, machine learning, et cetera, it, it's vast. And actually the business doesn't really care about all of that stuff. I want the value. I want to either benefit from increased revenue or reduced costs. So what is it that can be done to build on that? So it's, it's an interesting challenge. I think if you're able to articulate the business rationale behind all of this, the other stuff follows, and it allows those data professionals, those, those people with the big brains, most of them sitting in this room, to be able to, to get smart with the data and with the capability.
3: Well, just going on from there, being able to articulate to the business decision makers, is there um, a need to kind of tap into the buzzwords for them to get excited about it and throw their weight behind the support for it to go forward?
5: I, I was going to say, if you're in the C-suite, I'd say yes, absolutely. They do like a buzzword. And I think you know the the number of companies that I've spoken to that have whether it's been a CEO or a CMO, who have all said, oh, we've got to do artificial intelligence, we've got to do machine learning, and then you ask them why. And you sit there scratching your head thinking, well, that's not artificial intelligence or machine learning, and you don't need a data scientist to do this. It's, it's very basic stuff, but it's a buzzword. And I think it's a it's interesting to get the business buy-in at a high level. I think it's possible to... Have that smoke and mirrors solution whereby, yeah, absolutely, we're doing artificial intelligence. The reality is that you're not, but you're meeting the business requirements through data. Okay.
2: The, the only danger with, you know, the sort of just using the buzzword, I really like the way Orlando, you know, cautioned everybody away from that. Because the, the danger with sort of the buzzword is that it sort of seems like magic. And the sort of, you know, the other side of magic is in witchcraft. Right and so right and 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 the, so in, in one sense magic ROI is is amazing if you're a business but when you're dealing with customers you're dealing with real people witchcraft you know not good and you can quote me on that right like you you, you know what I mean that so you don't want your customers you don't I, you, Orlando can speak to this but you don't want the feeling that it's somehow uncanny or strange it has to feel you know like conf, not. Yeah, yeah, I think especially in,
4: in financial services businesses, I think it's very important, not least from a regulatory point of view, but definitely from a customer point of view. You want the the experience to be intuitive in some way yeah. rather than too mysterious. I think there can be some value in using buzzwords when talking to the C-suite. I think you're right. Sometimes the, you know, I think the trick is to use the buzzwords enough to get the budget you want but actually deliver some real things as well <laughs> so that the, the value comes to customers and the value is tangible. I, I think... Um, it doesn't, it's, you don't get a free pass from saying AI.
3: And so, what needs to happen for enterprises and organisations to be ready to adopt and implement automation
2: models? Everything. I mean, so what? I, so one of the things. Um, And, you know, I'm speaking sort of in prior roles running um, data science analytics teams, but one of the things I observe, the difference between companies that find it easier to adopt some of these techniques is actually knowing how decisions are made. So this whole sort of decision architecture is is almost a sort of function or priority in and of itself to understand. Just like in um, in the 90s, when everybody did business process outsourcing or offshoring, it required actually having the steps in the process clarified enough to be able to sort of move them, outsource them, or move them to another country or another time zone. And this one's a little bit different because it's about decisioning. Uh, you know, in some organizations, financial services institutions have a head start on it because they had a sort of discipline of the way decisioning was done. I worked at American Express, you know, in the decision area in risk and information management. And there was, you know, certain decisions were very sort of codified. And those ones were ripe for sort of switching techniques on. Um, banking's really, you know, all those fields are a nice example. There are other areas where it's a little trickier, you know, so sort of any wait times. You know, you know, tri- you know, triage in the medical field. There's a sort of tradition of how to make how to make decisions that is not always compatible with decisioning engines, if you will.
4: We need the combination of of business cases, but also a stronger instinct for some of the opportunities at the C-suite. Because I think one of the big differences between startups and big corporates, as I see it, is that startups often. Have a, a technician very close to the top. I mean, maybe the CEO, maybe on the board, mm-hmm. and that's rarely the case in big corporates. So sometimes what we're missing is that real belief that actually the opportunity will come if we invest in some of these technologies, and that really only comes from the from having immersed yourself in that kind of that kind of world a little bit. And I think that's probably what we need to see: a bit more education and a bit more immersion in some of these technologies.
5: And I think just sort of adding the, the geeky side to it as well, with regard to data quality. I and mean, you speak to any data scientist or anybody that is uh, dealing with artificial intelligence or machine learning, you've got to have quality data. And often that's a difficult discussion to have with the C-suite to get the investment. Machine learning, yeah, I get it, because it's shiny and a management consultant has come in and sold that to me. But where's the real value and being able to realize that value? from doing a raft of activities, that will improve and address data quality issues. It's, a, it's an interesting debate to have.
3: So then comes the question of how long is a piece of string where, how long will it take for a comprehensive understanding of decision architecture of, data, of improving data quality across the board and of having one of the sweet suite suites immersed to have the understanding of that. What do you think the time frame could be for that to all happen?
5: Depends on the C-suite. I I used to work for James Murdoch at Sky, and that was easy. James just got it, and and he was fantastic to work with. Um, Likewise, the CEO at Zurich Global Life, a guy called Kevin Hogan, didn't understand it all, but was open to listening to, we've got to get this data sorted because whatever we produce will be meaningless. I've worked for other people in other organizations. Uh, One person who was the chief marketing officer uh, turned around one day and said, I'm the chief data officer as well. Uh, No, you're not, you're the chief marketing officer. (laughs) I do data because data's the buzzword. And and being able to sit with that person and then start to talk about master data management, reference data management, data quality etc. you saw how eyes glaze over. And uh, no, that's IT well, you can't be the chief data officer if you've got no interest in this and and evolving it because it's all part of the ecosystem of data. And so, you know, it really depends who you're dealing with and their their openness to, to talk about the data world.
2: There's a view out there. I've heard it's um, Senator that there's a real need for data trans, data science translators. So the sort of this notion that somewhere over there there's some people who you know um, work with data, and then somewhere over there some business users or clients or customers need it explained. So could somebody please do the translation across? I just think that's nonsense. Um, that is not going to work. I think there's a much more interesting and more immediate, urgent role in this sort of data um, feeding and watering and care of data streams and data sets before they even make it into the, the analytics space. Um, and that, as you say, is often underlooked and often thought to be just text problem. Um, in some organizations, it's a quite an unhealthy divide. And I'd really like to see the focus on having accountability for, right, the so quality of the data sets in terms of sort of their ability to perform, but also sort of the ethical and regulatory issues around using certain data sets that just don't represent a view of the world we want going forward.
4: I I think it's down to the person. I I think, to be honest, I think really to Simon's point, there's no substitute for having somebody there that really just gets it, really just laps up the the opportunities and is prepared to invest in them as a result. If that's combined with a strategic instinct, then I think you're in a good
5: place. I think if, if you're starting from scratch, actually, I think you can really struggle. I think what's also quite interesting as well is that, again, this is such a complex landscape that we're moving to where people's roles are still being defined. I mean, what is a chief data officer, etc. <coughs> and when you then go into the big data exhibition at Excel or wherever it may be. I mean, I felt like a rabbit caught in the headlights with all of these uh, exhibitions and different offerings. And I I spoke to, to one chap who was selling the fastest database due to independent research that had been taken. I thought, okay, fantastic, great. Then went and spoke to the next vendor who said, we've got the fastest database based on some independent research. No, they have. Yeah. So really trying to, to navigate your way through what is becoming an increasingly complex um, uh, landscape is, is really challenging. And I think that what is also happening is that you're, you're getting a lot of technology people who are playing in the data space because they understand how the various building blocks fit together Uh, and so often that can be an enabler to getting everything passed through quite quickly it can also be an inhibitor because well this is data and it's the techie stuff so business you'll take what we give you and and that's the way it's going to be you you don't have to think about the most complex solution to deliver a big step change within your organisation often you've got The capability, whether that's in people's heads, but they're not necessarily prepared to to share that, and you've got to encourage them and explain the the value behind that. Um, But often you've got a lot of the technology that's available there, and it may not sit within your area, it may sit within technology, it may sit within uh, discussing the processes with the business. Marketing could be more efficient with what they're doing, and can you? change the way that you're delivering some of your existing processes to support them in a more efficient and effective way.
2: I'd say this is true in the business context and the research context. Um, Important to really check what's out there. Um, your teams, you know, working sort of in-house will often have a tendency to sort of build bespoke, I think. Um, That's a sort of common, uh, normal human um, uh, reaction. Um, Maybe some teams don't fall prey to as much as others, but I know that sort of always checking to make sure, are there pieces that can be sort of, you know, Um, bricolage together to to make the solution work. Um, I don't like to see, you know, sort of bespoke recommendation engines being built today. I don't like to see, um, you know, researchers sometimes build data visualization tools uh, when there are wonderful ones out there, you know, so on and so forth. So um, just always what can be sort of grabbed, Um, many of it, uh, you know, open source and works well together, so just move on.
4: Yeah, I mean, I'd agree with that. I think if you're trying to get these kind of technologies working, especially in a big company, I think do keep abreast of what's out there, do keep abreast of the opportunities. Do also think about the customer value or the opportunity to, to turn the technology into something that adds value to customers. And then I think just you know, along along the way, build lots of prototypes. You know, I, I think there's no substitute for, you know, in terms of getting people on board and showing them what the outcome could look like.
0: So that's it for another episode. If you liked it, please link, like, and share. And until the next time, goodbye.